Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time hearing our show, I've got great news for you. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today. And every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us. So please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. So every once in a while on Teacher's Lounge, we like to revisit what we like to call a Teacher's Lounge classic episode. So it's an episode that originally aired a few years ago that folks who are newer listeners might not have heard before and we think are worth re-listening to. So this episode is with Dr. Kathleen Katie Billman. And it's really an episode unlike we've had before and unlike we've had after. It dives into some really heavy emotional topics. And until her retirement during the pandemic, Dr. Billman was a professor of pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, and director of the Master of Divinity program at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Billman also taught a class called Caring for the Dying and Bereaved. The students did a lot of things. They were asked to write their own eulogy and they were asked to to write a letter to loved ones, what they would most want their, their closest loved ones to know. Again, it's a really good conversation, but it's a really weighty conversation. So we talk about death, loss and grief. So if that's not something you want to hear about today, it's totally fine, but just a brief content warning there. Other than that, without any more further ado, let's dive into a teacher's lounge classic. It's our conversation with Dr. Katie Billman. And she starts out talking about what it was like teaching her class at the beginning of the pandemic. I cried after many of my uh, classes. I, I had uh, gotten some certification to do online teaching. I never taught an online class and my subject matters, I always felt was more conducive to in-person learning if at all possible. So I was teaching and having a pretty great time actually my last semester, my last, my favorite class, Caring for the Dying and Bereaved. And then everything shut down. And the students, you know, they're supposed to do interviews. So they, they were supposed to go actually meet with people in person. So we all had to learn how to do things differently. And it was, is something always wrong with my technology? I, you know, <laughs> the class would be waiting for their link. And it, it, I, I didn't know yet. So anyway, anyway, it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. I've been interviewing people remotely for the last two years, and I'm still finding new technical difficulties to run into. So, like, you're not alone, and it's still happening to all of us. <laughs> yeah, you know, just the thing about how you connect with people. Like, right now, I feel like I'm looking at you because I'm looking at your face large on my screen. But I don't know if it looks like I'm looking at you because the camera's at a different angle. So... The whole thing about connection, how do you navigate that? I, I think I'm looking at you, but it probably looks like I'm not looking at you, you know? I know. I think about these things all the time. And you know what's really interesting is that, you know, sometimes when you do these calls, you know, it's best when it's just the both of us and we can see each other's faces. 
But sometimes you go in and, and teachers deal with this all the time, especially when you're teaching younger kids, where you come in and you're showing your face and then all the kids turn off their screens. So then you're just talking to blank squares and trying to connect with that. And if both screens are off and you just and nobody can see anybody, then it actually works pretty well because then it's just like you're talking on the phone. But I found that the hardest thing to do is when my face is showing and they can see me, but I can't see them. All of a sudden, I forget how to talk. All of the cues are off. It's so weird. Yes. Yes. But teaching is so relational. And, and if, you can't, if you can't see or even – it's harder. I think some people can do it. They have really great auditory skills and can hear even in the inflection of a voice something that's different. Is this connecting? Is it not? But I've always been such a visual learner and I rely a lot on visual cues. So if I can't see a response, it feels like there isn't a response. Like on some level you get used to it, but again, like if, if we showed up and I had to do this where it was just my because then it's like, you know, you're always kind of looking back at yourself when you're on a Zoom call. And then it's just, you're making direct eye contact with yourself while trying to talk to someone else. And that is alarming. That's scary. <laughs> I, I, I try, like, I've got you on full speaker view and I'm just a little box up there and I'm trying not to look at myself because it freaks me out. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Were you able ever to get uh, to say any of the goodbyes that you wanted to? Did you ever get any of that resolution at the end of your, at the end of your year? Well, my students were so precious. Um, I emailed each of them a personal letter to talk about how they wanted to navigate some things and whether they wanted personal phone calls, whether they wanted. But at the end of the class, I know they so much didn't work the way I dreamed and didn't work <laughs> at all. But um, the students, I think, could tell how hard I was trying, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And so the last day of class, and they knew I was supposed to retire, but, you know, none of the retirement rituals would happen. You know, no banquet, no farewell, no nothing. So they all made little cards. Um, I love you, Dr. Bowman, you know, thank oh. you, Dr. Bowman. And, and so I'm looking at the screen and it's like a Jeopardy board, you know, the Je or not Jeopardy, uh, <laughs> oh, Hollywood Squares. You know, they all look like Hollywood Squares and they all have these little notes and one of them did a poem and the other one, you know, did a blessing. Yeah, they were very sweet. That was very healing for me because it had been such a hard way to end my teaching <laughs> career. Yeah, going out with a bang for sure, right? <laughs> it was more like a whimper, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating you know I, I've had so many conversations with teachers throughout the pandemic and you're always thinking about how like it's up and like we've been talking about it's upended the social fabric of everything like schools going remote you know work and and church too right and the thing I've been so interested in is are we able to like look back on this time and be like okay what did we learn and like what are some like silver linings that we can take with us to improve things, you know, after the pandemic is over. Cause I think it would, like, it feels like a missed opportunity to just go through this entire, both like tragic and also like, again, completely almost like a soft reset on society. Yes. And then go back to the way things were exactly like something has to change. Like we had to have learned something. I'm curious, like, what do you think? And I, I guess it could be, 
about education. It could be about a church. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Like, are there things that we can learn from this? You know, it's so interesting that you asked that question because I'm reading this amazing book right now. Oh, it's right here. Wait, wait one second. Go grab it. It's called Julian of Norwich, Wisdom in a Time of Pandemic and Beyond. And it's, written, it's written by Matthew Fox. And it's, a, and, you know, Julian of Norwich um, lived her whole life uh, amid the bubonic plague. It, it, her the, whole life. Her whole life because the pandemic, the bubonic plague, I think it began uh, in her area. She was in Norwich, England. It first hit there when she was seven. It lasted for a few years, then it came back. And so this book is about um, how a fox is looking at some of what she wrote during that time and, and, and getting seven lessons for live and, and just a couple of them that are, I have it about halfway through the book right now, but a couple of them were really meaningful to me and actually have to do with teaching and learning. I think the first one is called facing the realities of things without denial. She called it facing the darkness. And so how do you, how do you not minimize or well, happy brushstroke on things that were really hard um, without being overwhelmed by them? Because she's a very joyful person, actually. She's a very, very joyful mystic. Um, but the second thing was about not taking for granted anything, your breath from one moment to the next, you know, what is beautiful in the world around us. And that, I think more than anything else, that reminder not to take anything for granted. If we could, I I know it's hard to live in that, you know, we do take things for granted after a while, but having lost so much um, to live out of that sense of gratitude and not taking one single gift for granted is one of the lessons. Yeah, and then there there, there are seven, um, and then there's a chapter for each of the, the lessons, but it's, it's been good for me to read it because it, it, you know, some things were a reminder of things I already believed, but just needed to be reminded of again. Yeah, I think that like for me, it's interesting you bring that up. The first one that you mentioned, one of the first lessons it speaks to me because like right now I feel like I, I, was, I was just talking to my dad about this the other day of how to balance being realistic and confronting the darkness, right? Confronting the realities of the world you live in while also like retaining hope and optimism at the same time. And like, how do you do that? Because I found myself like, you know, the more that, uh, you know, people are lifting mask mandates and feel like things are, are maybe headed in a direction that's good, that I like, like I've been burned too many times, right? Like I, we, we've been, uh, turning the corner on the pandemic too many times where like I I have to like see it concretely like I can't I can't live off of the the hope of projection at this point that like in three weeks things will get better but I have to be like okay so I'm, I'm feeling a little skeptical right now and I understand the realities but how do I do that and also still be optimistic and and still feel hope for the future <laughs> yes that's such an important uh, 
tension that you were describing, Peter. One of the ways I look at it too is that it it has to do with uh, where that that sort of boundary is between the risks that you're willing to take because mm. you need you need to be able to and teachers I think are really struggling with this right now. There uh, there's I read a wonderful article in the New York Times. It was very nuanced about how there have been some real costs to masks for children and for, I sure. mean, for everybody. But some of what we talked about when we started chatting this morning is that you lose some nuance, you lose full. Um, you know, if, if 95% of communication is nonverbal and you can't see most of a person's face, what does that do to human communication? And it does, ex it does affect things. So how do you balance the, the concern for safety and the concern for community and connection? So it's, it's really complicated. And, you know, sometimes in this polarized world, we tend to make things so it's either this or it's that. And we don't talk about the, like what you were raising is the tension. It's how do you yeah. navigate the tension? Even acknowledging that, it is hard and that it is complicated. Well, yeah, this was so much a part of that class I taught in Caring for the Dying. Mm. How do you, um, yeah, <laughs> there's so many uh, complicated questions that aren't easily resolved by you always do this or you always do that. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that class too. And because it's something that really, made in, in kind of indelible mark on the people that, that nominated you for this show. And I was thinking again, as it relates to the pandemic, when you're kind of just living through a time of grief for so many people, I was curious if you had like, you know, a, a practice or advice or a tool, a lesson, something that you think could help people who are, are trying to just be there for someone who might be going through loss or some kind of grief? Well, we spent a lot of time in class talking about the power of listening, that grief is not something you get over. I've been very critical of stage theories, uh, which one therapist has called the cages of stages, sort of like you that you're going to go, you're going to start here. And of course, to be fair, um, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is originally developed in her work with the dying, this idea of the five stages that lead to death. She never meant it to be stair-step or linear. She, it was more nuanced. It was more of a spiral. You go back and forth and so on. But I, I think it's, it's more liberating to think of um, living through grief as, it's more like a, a a river or think of something that constantly moves and ebbs and flows and you can feel kind of frozen in place. That can be part of what it's like to feel grief and feel stuck and trapped. But that it's, it's the process of how we actually come to story or describe our experience at any one point in time and having someone help us to do that, to name the nuances of it to actually invite people to richly describe um, that 
the facets of, of loss that they're going through because loss is so multifaceted. It has so many threads to it. Yeah, it's not linear. You don't just start off at one point and then just get better progressively. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's And when anniversaries come and you, you relive things, maybe not quite in the same way, but you, I know my husband, the anniversary is my husband's death is coming up in a few days. And, you know, there'll be uh, ways that I will want to intentionally return, remember, um, give thanks for his life um, through what I, I think rituals are really helpful for people. Um, I know that the first Christmas uh, uh, after Jim died, I went to a, um, one of those blue Christmas services that churches have. And mostly I didn't like it because it was so many words. People kept reading things and kept talking but the place in the service that I felt that I was so glad I was there and I was actually able to feel, get in touch with the, uh, both the sorrow and the gratitude was when we were um, invited to light a candle. And it was that action, that getting up out of my chair and moving and lighting a candle. And it wasn't just all about words. It was about do, doing and um, moving and that was so meaningful to me. And then that the kind of uh, closed off part between my, um, what an old pastoral care teacher used to call your gizzard <laughs> and, and my head, you know, kind of op opened up and I could feel all the way in my body, you know, the, what I'd actually gone to church to feel. And that was to feel connected again, even if it hurts, you know, to feel connected and not, not, I'm frozen, I'm not numb. I didn't. I I didn't want to be numb, and it was only that that helped me not feel numb. So I think helping people, whether some people are artistic and they draw and they make memory books and collages, and some people are are musical and and singing helps, and some people tell stories, and some people like candles, and they're all different kinds of ways to be connected, um, but. To just have some company and help in doing that, I think is really important. Wow. Well, thanks for that. And I'm sorry to hear about that loss in your life, too. It affected how I taught the yeah. class. Um, I, I'm sure, how could it not? Right? How could yeah. it not? Yeah. One of the reasons uh, in, in the class I'm caring for the dying and bereaved, we, um, the students did a lot of things. They were asked to write their own eulogy and they were asked to, to write a letter to loved ones, what they would most want their, their closest loved ones to know. And uh, they were asked to actually uh, fill out the power of the durable power of attorney for healthcare and a document uh, called the five wishes um, about you know different wishes they had about if they had, had to face their own death. I did that for two reasons. One is that in all the literature about uh, working with grieving people, if, if the person who wants to help hasn't faced this grief that comes with contemplating your own, the loss of your own life and the relationships that you have and the things that you cherish, 
how can you be fully present with someone? How can you have the courage to be with other people if you haven't faced how hard it is for them? So part of it was just that's how people who are, are educated to deal with grief. It's part of the educational process. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about stuff like writing your own eulogy and what you find that brings out of your students. And it sounds like on some level, it is kind of equipping them to try to learn to swim in those waters, right? When it's something that can be very, very deep. If, and then if you're not prepared for it, yes. I don't know how you'd be able to do it. Yes. And the not prepared for it is part of the challenge as an educator in a class like that, because I think teachers are talking a lot more these days in a way they never did when I started teaching. Some, some teachers call it content warnings. Some, some teachers call it trigger warnings. What kinds of things can you unwittingly do in the classroom that re-trigger trauma? So, um, so I, I would always start my class in uh, caring for the dying and bereaved, I would give the, the students an online survey before class started. And I would ask them to talk about, I would give them a whole range of different kinds of losses and how many had um, experienced this or that. And then I asked them about what created for them a, the, a sense that they could be brave in the classroom, what, what things would undermine being able to fully participate um, would be frightening or, or off-putting, um, you know. Uh, so I, I, I pulled one out thinking about our conversation this morning. And, you know, I think I had an assumption, especially when I was working with younger students, that they wouldn't have experienced a lot of terrible loss, but, 16 out of 18 members of a class I taught about three years ago, 12 had experienced the death of a grandparent, 12 had experienced the death of a member of their family or extended family, two had experienced the death of a sibling, uh, four had experienced the death of a parent, um, seven experienced the death of a loved one because of accident or natural disaster. Um, Five had experienced the suicide of someone close to them, um, and on and on. Uh, three had experienced the death of a child, which is one of the hardest, you know, most catastrophic losses. And five in the class had a loved one who was either uh, facing, uh, had a serious illness, life-threatening illness, or was actively dying. So this is my class, right? So the first task was just to unearth who are we? What are we bringing to this experience? What are our vulnerabilities? And how can we care for one another through talking about these things? You know, I would say to the class, you know, everything about this syllabus is a content one. We're talking about some of the most painful things. So what commitments can we make to each other to be able to do this work together? And whether it's, you know, if you, you know, having a classroom that's safe for tears or having a classroom where you can get up and leave the room. Now, of course, at Zoom, you could just click off your audio or you could click off it. But in, that, in those days, you, you know, people are sitting there 
if you feel overwhelmed or you're starting to feel like you are coming undue, can you, without judgment, being judged, walk out of a classroom to take care of yourself? Um, can you ask if somebody will go with you um, or choose to go by yourself, in which case people aren't going to follow you out and badger you about why you left, um, try to get you to come back in? I mean, uh, I had to, you know, we had to think about all of these things. And, and the, the important thing was to think about them together, um, to make decisions as a class even with the assignment to do all of the, the five wishes and everything, uh, people did not have to actually sign the documents or finalize them. They just had to have the experience of doing them. And people had, um, if, if people said, I can't talk to my, my, my closest loved ones or my parents, but something's going on at home and I can't have this conversation with them right now they could talk to somebody else. So, I mean, there was always, you know, how you, you, you know, you always have to kind of modify things so that they don't hurt or damage people. Um, but, but it's impossible to eliminate the pain that comes from, you know, actually doing some of these things um, that you, but, but what kept me doing it was all the students who wrote these beautiful letters and, said what it was like to actually talk to their parents or their spouse together and that they took steps that they wouldn't have taken had they not had that assignment. Yeah, I'm sure in some ways for some people, it's almost a shortcut into conversations they really wish they would have been able to have otherwise, that it kind of gives you, you know, for lack of a better word, an excuse to get to those topics. Yes. And that's where the life of the teacher impacts the content of the course. I, I never used to do all of those things in my mm. class, but uh, I had a, a daughter, um, my, my son was, uh, and his fiance found out July, four months before their big wedding that she had a metastatic breast cancer, stage four. And they made the decision to go ahead with the wedding and it was a beautiful wedding. They had some really good months together, but she died um, about a week. She died exactly a week before her 29th birthday and a month uh, and a week before their first wedding anniversary. And so that taught me as a family, we weren't prepared for any of the practical questions. We hadn't had those conversations. We hadn't talked about how did she want her body to be cared for after death or cremation, burial. Uh, we didn't talk about, you know, any of those practical, practical things. And sometimes you can't talk about those things because the person who's dying isn't able to face a death and isn't able to have the conversation, but even the gentle invitation, if, if you project your, your death out there 10 years or so, what would you, what do you think at this point you would want? What kind of choices would you make? And I would give this those choices too. You don't have to imagine your death is tomorrow. Um, imagine that you, you live to 90 and write the letter that you imagine you would write to your grand child. I encourage people, 
project your life. What kind of life would you like to live? Would you like to live to 105? Project it out, you know, and who, who do you imagine would speak about you and what would you want them to say about you? Um, yeah, it, you know, it's got to be such an interesting challenge for you as an educator to like create and like foster that kind of environment where people are comfortable having conversations about these things just like on a Tuesday afternoon and obviously you know, this is like graduate level theology and, and religious people but also just be like you know it's cold outside I'm gonna grab a bagel I'm gonna come to class and we're gonna discuss my you know mortality <laughs> yes, yes yeah I I really um boy I I appreciate and love the students that I work with they were wonderful human beings they are wonderful human beings um, and, and they want, I mean, what I had going for me as a teacher is that they chose to be in that class. They didn't have to be. And I asked the students, um, well, I try to remember how I worded the, you know, something like truth be told, I'm taking this class because, and then I had yeah. a bunch of options. And one of them was, you know, if I'm being utterly truthful, I don't really want to take this class, but I think I ought to. And I really applauded those students the most in my heart because, you know, they said to themselves, if I'm going to do this work, if I'm going to be a, a pastor, a good pastor, I have to do this work, even if I don't want to, even if I dread it, um, even if it's going to kick up all this crap that I've experienced in my life that I don't want to think about, um, but they do it. And, and that's amazing. I mean, they're highly motivated. They didn't, they weren't forced, forced marched to do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, well, of course I had going for me too, that they were, most of them were going to do clinical pastoral education that summer. They were facing this stuff coming yeah, soon. Right? Yeah. You know what? It was practical. Sometimes when students would say to me, should I take this class or not? I would say, well, what kind of learner are you? Um, do you, are you the kind of learner who likes to, if you're going into a, you know, a body of water, kind of wade in little by little and have a, you know, um, or do you just want to just jump off the diving board into the deep end of the pool? And some, some students actually, I, I just want to jump off into the deep end of the pool. I'll just go to CPE and yeah, that's how I'll learn. And that was fine. I mean, I didn't ever try to talk anybody into taking the class. You've been retired for what, almost two years now? How, is, how has it been treating you? It, um, it's a learning experience. Uh, I'm kind of extroverted. Uh, yeah, me, me too, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we just started in, right? We didn't, you know, I thought, okay, maybe there'll be a break and we'll, we'll say, okay, now we're starting. But we just sort of, that's, that's, that's the way. But like you it. said, off, the, in, just jump into the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm alone most of the time now. And so that's uh, been a real learning, um, learning more about myself and how to, structure my days and keep learning. So I'm, I'm trying to learn Italian and I'm reading a lot. I'm in two different book clubs that <laughs> we read and we talk, but you know, once, once a month and the others uh, about three times a week, uh, three times a month. 
and uh, that's with former pastors and the, the other book club is mostly with former academics so I feel like I'm bringing together the life I lived when I was a young pastor and the life I lived when I was an educator and uh, a formal educator and I'm trying to I really there are things I want to learn how to do like reduce my carbon footprint which is a mm. huge goal for the next year and so I'm I, I haven't quite found a way yet that that I feel I'm really actually contributing to society um, in the way that I want to and part of that's the pandemic you know I, yeah of course it's hard I'm, I'm more of an in-person let me go and volunteer somewhere not now I when I write checks well that's something but it's not I don't feel like tangible in the same way yeah yeah it's actually my my dad retired like two weeks before the pandemic so he got out right when the getting was good right like just (laughs) just just in time and it was something that I know that he had thought a lot about and read about and counseled on of, of what retirement means. And I know the pandemic kind of just threw a giant wrench into a lot of that, but it's like, it like forced him to really think about like his hobbies and the things that he wanted to do just like on a day-to-day basis. And he was like, okay, we have, you know, distance running, he's a marathoner. So it's like, okay, so if we plot this out and we say, okay, so running is something you're gonna do pretty much every day. If we're gonna be really generous with you, that gives you about one to two hours. Okay, so we, we've made it to one to two hours that we know is gonna happen every day and now what else is gonna happen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but if you're used to a structured life, retirement is, yeah. Yeah, I have a little, I'm so obsessive. <laughs> And so I have a little chart. I'm a, I made a little strip every day of five things that I want to do. I want to practice my Italian. I want to practice the piano. I want to read at least a half an hour. I want to do yoga. And what's the other one? I'm obsessed with the New York Times spelling bee. I do that. The every spelling day. bee, really? Oh, I loved I love word games. I've had a lot of fun with Wordle and honestly the biggest part of it is just like I have I've convinced several people in my life to do it. So now there's just like a group chat where every morning you'll just boom, everyone just uploads their scores and it's just it's a nice way to check in. Yeah, it is. It is. That's, that sounds wonderful. You you mentioned the piano and actually for me probably my biggest hobby that I've tried to take on during the pandemic has been uh, the piano. I've tried to learn how to play the piano and it's been, I've, I have, uh, I've loved it, but again, like I, it's been during the pandemic. So I have not had a teacher. I have gone through a variety of like apps to start off with. I've watched like YouTube videos about how to play different songs or learning about different kinds of music theory. And I've just, found it such a rich and rewarding experience and it's fa- like I, I don't I don't like again like if I had a teacher who knows like the amount of holes that they would be able to fill in like gaps in my education but just experimenting on my own and trying to dabble with it has been amazing I've loved it oh that's wonderful the the interesting thing for me was I, I you know I started off using an app that was I think kind of teaching piano in a very traditional way of of you know sheet music and playing a lot of classical pieces and things and like trying to build your way to being able to do those things and really as time has gone on I've had to think about like okay like what are my actual goals with this like am I trying to be a concert pianist or do I just <laughs> want to know how to like 
play the songs that I want to play <laughs> and have fun with like experimenting with different chords. So I've really like, you know what, Peter, I, I've really had to think about, do we actually, you know, like, what am I even trying to get out of this? Yeah. And so I, I've, I've like learned enough where I've, I've been able to consider, okay, I've got the basics down, but really like, what do I even want? <laughs> like, why am I doing this? And that is really kind of opened things up in a new way where I'm just like, okay, I, I'm going to, you know, learn this theory that I think is really interesting and learn how to play songs that I love. And, and, you know, maybe that's my goal with it. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Hooray. Have you been playing, have you been playing for a long time? Since I was a little girl. I'm, I'm not no great, but I can play a variety of kinds of music and I play, it's my therapy. Um, music is therapy. I like to, I love Broadway shows and I love um, musicals of all kinds. And um, do you like to play like hymns, hymns and uh, that type of, yeah. I've got lots of, of hymnals and uh, I, I do like to play hymns, but I, just as I like Cole Porter too, <laughs> so I've probably been playing <laughs> more Cole Porter than I have hymnody lately. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. My my uh, my brother actually he plays by ear, and mostly when I hear him play, I hear him play hymns. And watching someone just like get up to the piano and be like, "Oh, I don't really know this song, but it's something like this," and then just play it, uh-huh. I it must be the kind of learner that I am, but that just makes no sense to my brain how people are able to do that. <laughs> yes, yes. My husband's last church was a wonderful um, multicultural church, mostly Mexican-American, um, some African-American, older whites. And the musical group was, there were three Latina guitarists and a lead singer and three kind of aged white women like me. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And two African-American men, the director and the drummer, and Jim, my husband, uh, sang. And the Theo, the, the lead, um, the, the director, didn't read music, but knew could play anything. Could play, cause it's he, amazing. To play by ear, he, he'd hear, hear a song, he knew what the chords were. And so when he invited me to be a keyboardist in the band, I'm like, I, I can't do this. I only know how to read music. But he, you know, he talked to me through things and I would write down, he'd tell me the line of music and I'd write down, okay, F, C, G, you know, and if it was a chord, I'd put the names of the chord, F sharp, C, A sharp, and I'd draw a circle around it. That means it's a chord. And so I finally learned, you know, through that weird kind of way, how to play keyboards in that band but it was i thought i could never do it and it was such a wonderful thing to join in and i know yeah, what was it like being in a band i'm so i i oh, i oh. want to know everything about that experience because i i would love to be a part of something like that phenomenal it's phenomenal it it's the best thing to make music with other people love it just love it it's great Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, that sounds fan- that sounds fantastic. I would love to be able to do that at some point. Well, especially because you're an extrovert, right? You know. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, yeah, my one of my dad's uh, pandemic hobbies has been trying to learn how to play guitar. So now it's just like my fantasy that at some point, you know, he's going to get good at that. My brother can play the trumpet too, and just I'm going to force everyone into some kind of family band. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Great. Do it. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned. Um, that you started playing piano when you were a little, when you were really young. And you know, a lot of people that we talk to, a lot of educators that we have on this show, they like either their parents were teachers themselves or 
it was something that they knew from a very young age that they loved to, you know, arrange their stuffed animals and like teach them lessons and things like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious for you, was has education been something that you knew you were passionate about for a long time or is it something that came later in your life? You know, that's the, that's a tough question to answer. I love school and I loved my teachers. If you ask me like who was the most important teacher in your life, I have to tell you 15 people who all <laughs> contributed something different to my life. You know, from Mr. Ramage, who, when I would, you know, it was the Vietnam War, um, he introduced subject matter, he got us talking about things in the classroom that were happening in the world in our social studies class. I'll never forget what that opened up for me. Like, oh, we were talking about world events in the classroom, this is wonderful. So how is education a public activity? You know, that has to do with the world we live in right now. The teachers who made me memorize things, I love them. A lot of students just hate that. For me, they gave me things I can still say from memory. 60 years later, I can say some of the poems and some of the, the you know, the Gettysburg Address and things, the preamble to the Constitution. And I think it's the things that we learn by heart that we take with us all our lives. So I love those teachers. Um, you know, there was a teacher who I remember in his classroom was the first conscious understanding I had that life is full of different perspectives and that you can't always trust the narrator of a story. He was reading uh, out loud to our English class, Robert Browning's poem, My Last Duchess. And I think in my naivete, I thought whoever wrote a poem or whoever told a story or whoever, you know, that's, that, that's truth, right? And the way he read it, you could tell that the, the Duke is a sadist. And that he had his, his, his last duchess actually put to death. Oh, wow. And I remember the shock of that. But, um, and then we read As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And, you know, every chapter is a different perspective. And I'm thinking, well, which one is true? Which one is true? You know, the realization that there are multiple perspectives. I mean, oh, my gosh, school teachers. I mean, the Shakespeare teacher I had in college who invited us to our home and made, she was like nearly 80, I think, and she was still teaching and she was so passionate about Shakespeare and she made us these funny drinks in her blender. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I watched Hamlet in her living room. I mean, I, I had wonderful teachers everywhere and every stage of education. I, I always had such respect for teaching but I, I was getting ready to be a pastor. And so that's not a formal, you know, that's not like you have the title educator, but teaching is so much a part of pastoral ministry. So oh, absolutely. what I want to say about being in a trajectory toward a religious education, in a religious education and going in the direction of that, I finally became a religious educator is that what I learned was teaching isn't just what happens in the classroom. It's not this thing that's bounded by the walls of a classroom or even the, you know, Zoom. It's, it's the way you live your life. And that's what I wish teachers could have more opportunity to talk about together is the burdens and the joys of that, is that 
everything we do, everything we are teaches, everything teaching isn't just limited to the, you know, what happens in the classroom. It's not limited to courses on pedagogy, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a life. It's a, it's, it's something that infiltrates all of, all of life. It's not just this one little thing. I hope that's something that people have learned, especially during the pandemic, right? As like we're forced to unshackle ourselves from the time and place that we think education happens. Yes, yes, that's a really good point. I think that's a great point, Peter. Um, I don't think students see us as much in the other venues that they, you know, like my son's a teacher, a high school teacher, and, you know, he does study halls now when he's back in school and he coaches yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that are part of being a teacher's life and that we're part of being a seminary teacher's life. I mean, what kinds of conversations do you have in the cafeteria? What what kinds of committees do you work on with students? What, um, what, what about when it's your turn to read scripture or leave a chapel service or preach? Um, you know, it's all, everything that, that students see you doing. You mentioned that when you were young, you were already on the path to becoming a pastor. That was something that from a, a pretty young age, you knew, I, or, or oh, did that also come it later? It wasn't a possibility when I was young. I was going to ask about that too, yeah. No, I wasn't. On a, I remember um, asking my high school, saying to my high school, uh, my, my the pastor I had when I was in high school, that I thought, I thought about being a pastor and his, his response, it wasn't, oh, you can't do that. It was more like, well, I've only known two. I'll never forget his response, actually. He told me, he said, well, I've only known two women in my life who I thought could do this work. Only two? <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, you know, because, you know, when you're a pastor, you might go from a funeral in the morning to like a youth group party in the evening. And can, most women can't navigate those emotional changes. And I just, you know, I looked up to him. He's, he's a pastor, you know, what he said was pretty much, but I should have said, that's the biggest bunch of BS I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> but, it took, oh my, yeah. but, it, but it took years. It took years to actually be able to say something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I was, I, I knew I wanted to, I think I was, so I thought, well, I'll be a missionary. I'll be a social worker. It wasn't. And and again, it was teachers in college that they were saying, well, why not go to seminary? I'll write you a recommendation to go to seminary. Why don't you go to seminary? You know, so it was, yeah. So the world changes, right? And the things that were true when I was young, and even when I started teaching, are not true anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me, even as someone that, that grew up <laughs> not too long ago, that, you know, I, I grew up primarily in a Southern Baptist church, where for a lot of people, that's still not possible in, you know, the year of our Lord, 2022, right? I know, I know, I know. Which is, bonkers to think about it feels like you're going on a it feels like you're going on vacation to like 1925 or something yes and i'm sure you have many listeners i mean the a huge um a huge part of the world is Roman catholic and women can't be priests so it's it's not 
it's not an unusual thing that women are seen as people who can be, be pastors or bishops or um, and now, of course, I'm associated with religious communities where women can be bishops and can be presiding bishops and um, can uh, serve in any capacity in the church. But, but you know, there have been all kinds of um, discriminations, and they still go on today in other ways. So. And again, what a journey to be able to watch like you said, the world around you change as you were going through all these things. Yes. I mean, radically change. I mean, when I was, uh, when I started in seminary, it was general, hardly any of us who were on members of theological faculties had formal training in pedagogy. I mean, the, the reading assumption was at the graduate level, if you knew your subject matter, you could teach it. And that students who got to the graduate level would be just waiting for what you had to say. And it didn't take long for that to be totally, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't teach a month before I realized that I had a lot to learn about pedagogy and a lot to learn about teaching. And so some of my best workshops actually, they've taken place between like, the later um, 1990s and through the 2000s. I mean, we, we started asking for workshops. Tell us what you do. Um, and, and, and then the growing awareness that our race and our gender and our sexual orientation and our degree of able-bodiedness in our class, all these things were shaping the way we taught our subject matter, what subject matter we taught, how we related to students in our classrooms. And so getting up to speed on how all those factors shape the way we, the way we teach. Um, I mean, that, that was like huge. I mean, that was all happening when I was finding my sea legs as a teacher. And the whole idea that we're, that it's not teachers and students, but that we're simultaneously teaching and learning together all the time, that we have as teachers have as much to learn from their students as students from their teachers and how is that a mutual enterprise? I mean, all that was just, I, I was really feel very blessed that I taught in this watershed change period about what, what it means to be a teacher and the sorts of things that we have to consider and, um, and change and be self-critical about, yeah, so. Yeah. I saw one of the classes that you taught was about, you know, women's contribution in theology and ministry. I was just curious, like, I, I think we talked about it maybe a little bit at, at the top with the book that you've been reading recently, but I was just interested to hear if you wanted to talk a little bit of some about your favorite, you know, theologians who are women or favorite stories from them, wow. anything that when it comes to that, that, that you want to share. Oh, wow. Well, there's so many. Yeah. You know, wonderful women theologians uh, in, in the Catholic tradition, um, Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Lacuna just wrote mm -hmm. some beautiful theological, you know, really um, sophisticated theological books um, in New Testament. My colleague, Barbara Rossing. Yeah. I mean, oh, golly. In pastoral care. Um, you know, my mentor was uh, a teacher named Christy Meager, and she wrote a wonderful book 
on counseling women with a methodology about how, how counseling proceeds from helping people come to voice, you know, to name things with their own language, um, to communicate understanding of what people are saying so that people can hear themselves. Uh, Nell Morton had a phrase, we hear ourselves in the speech, that we need someone to hear um, our words and reflect them back um, to us so that we can hear what we think and make corrections and say, well, no, it wasn't this, but it's this. And we need that. Then we need help in um, clarifying um, the, our, the choices that we have and the communities of care that will sustain the, the choices that we want to make um, and gaining insight about the you know, the ways that our stories can be hampered. I mean, there, there's just, there's so many. I mean, there's women are writing wonderful things and have written wonderful things and will continue to write wonderful things. Absolutely. One of the last questions I always ask people, and I always say, we might have answered already throughout the course of our conversation, but I just kind of like the way this is framed, which is just in terms of your life and education and religious education and everything that we've been talking about, is there just something that when it comes to being an educator, you wish more people talked about when they talked about it? Something that you think is a more significant piece of it than people who live outside of education might realize? Mm -hmm. And maybe it is the what you talked about, about how being an educator is so much more than what happens within the walls and yeah. the allotted times of the class. Yes. Yes, and I would connect that with the, um, the growing, I think, sense of awareness we have about how there are aspects of how we've grown up, um, again, where we've come from, our racial identity, et cetera, et cetera, how those things um, shape the way we evaluate, the way we interact, of the subject matter we choose, the things we hold dear, um, the things we don't, that we, we run from as teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to talk about those kinds of things together. And it does have to do with this idea that every, everything we are and everything we do teaches. And that's a burden and a blessing both. And so to be able to talk about both sides of that. Right. It's a responsibility, right? Responsibility. And, you know, especially pastors are very sensitive. You know, they don't want to be seen as holier than thou. You know, they want to be real people and sometimes bend over backwards trying to say, hey, I'm a real person. I, you know, I swear, I, you know. But, oh, yeah, we're cool, skinny jean <laughs> pastors. We're just like you, yeah. yeah. Right, we're just like you. And, um, and you know, I think, you know, it's not about being holier than thou, but it's about congruence. It's about um, our, I mean, all people everywhere, no matter what they do, I think, especially in this world we're living in, you know, we need more conversations about what convictions do we hold most dear and how are we embodying those in our lives and whatever we do. Um, you know, when I, when I think about what's happening to the environment, the threats that we face, we don't have an indefinite amount of time 
to say whether our, um, if we value the earth, what kind of life are we going to live that actually gives the earth a chance to survive? I mean, those are, these are really critical questions. And, um, and, and I hope in school, <laughs> we're, we're certainly having conversations about those things, but also, you know, being vulnerable about how hard it is to make progress. Yeah. What do we believe in? And then how can we embody that? And what does it say about us? Right. Yeah. And yeah. And what are you willing to sacrifice to, to get that? Well, I think that's, I think that's a perfect way to close. <laughs> I've had just the best time chatting with you. I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation too. Oh, Thanks Peter, so much. You're a delightful person to talk <laughs> with. Um, so I'm sure you've got lots of people. So that was so much fun. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Katie. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share, like, whatever you can do. It really does help us get more listeners and more perspectives on the show. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the awesome music you hear each and every episode. Thank you to Spencer Tritt for making our wonderful Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back very soon with more Teacher's Lounge. See ya.